Let's behold that mystery by turning to John 13. John 13 is our text this morning. And we'll be reading today verses 18 through 30. John 13, verses 18 through 30. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. I'm told that when sheep are taken to the slaughterhouse to be killed, they have this sixth sense. They know what's going on before it happens. Even on the back of the truck, they get restless and will even lean away from the gate. And despite the fact that they've never been in this place before, they will refuse to walk down the plank. And so, well-meaning slaughterhouses thought of a way around it. They would actually take a sheep and raise it in the courtyard of the slaughterhouse. It would be familiar with the environment and therefore not afraid of what was to come. And so when a new flock of sheep would come 
uh, for butchering. This one particular sheep would be led up the plank into the truck and then walk back down again, putting the other sheep at ease to follow behind it. And this sheep is called none other than the Judas sheep. It almost seems diabolical. Evil. These, these guys taking advantage of these others in this way, planting in some kind of a, a splinter cell to their own destruction. And yet it's indeed part of a plan. Anytime we consider someone of the nature of Judas Iscariot, we kind of think the same. It's diabolical. This is wicked. This is heinous. This is wrong. How? This can't be part of the plan. Or can it? Is it diabolical what Judas did, or is it divinely appointed? How does the text read? We're in some deep water today, folks. Let me just go ahead and tell you ahead of time. I don't have that many jokes prepared. This could be one of the heaviest things we ever talk about. The text is about experienced evil. I'm not just talking about a bad day. I'm talking about evil. I mean, there are some things that happen in the course of this life, especially on the world scene, that you think, oh, well, that wasn't just an unfortunate accident. That was downright diabolical. We're often protected from it, but if you think of the genocides that have taken place over the last 100 years on an international scale, the hundreds of thousands of people, men, women, children, who have been slaughtered at the hands of others, you think that's just wicked, that is evil. You think of it on even smaller scales. I don't know why our culture is so fascinated with it, but there's just endless shows that, that get this fodder for, for stories of people who have been brutally murdered or raped or tortured. And they get that material from somewhere, folks. The reason why a law and order and a CSI is like always running is because people are always doing this kind of thing. It's evil. And it's not just evil at large. At times it's evil against us. I mean, just unexplainable atrocities that some will experience in their lifetime, some even here today. The, the murder or death of one that we love in the most unfortunate of circumstances, sometimes just, it seems like there was something dark going on there. Or anyone who's ever suffered at the betrayal of a spouse thinks that had to have been something satanically influenced. We don't talk about it. It's the elephant in the room. There's no need to talk about it publicly much, but even if you think of uh, the abuse, the sexual abuse that takes place 
Often at the hands of some trusted individual, we, we are forced to wrestle then with evil as an experience and ask, is this some detour? Or like, did God lose control of the reins for a little bit and he's got to pull it back in? Or is this something that he somehow like keeps in check that he oversees? Some even see the experience of evil as the greatest embarrassment of the Christian faith, uh, the Achilles heel of an otherwise invincible Scripture. But our God in Christ shies not away from such supposed blights and weaknesses. He leans in. This Bible is not afraid to address the experience of evil. Did you notice it in this text? I tried to read it slowly and carefully. How does it come across? I mean, throughout our study of the book of John, we've seen this increasing hostility to Jesus where like, He escapes the evil that is intended against Him. It's like they were going to murder him, and then all of a sudden he just got out of dodge. It's like all these narrow escapes, these narrow misses, and you're thinking, man, this is awesome. The perfect Son of God is able to uh, avoid this uh, dreadful fate, and we seem so stunned. And, and, And you're almost thinking like, well, maybe it's going to turn out so that he just rules and reigns and just like coasts into victory. And then he gets to the end of his ministry, what we saw in chapters 10 and 11, And start saying stuff like, oh, by the way, I know I've escaped death, but I'm actually going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. This is part of the plan. And you've got to receive it. That's what caused the crowds to leave him, by the way. They didn't like the idea of a king who would actually suffer and die. And so now we're down to 12 dudes. It was hundreds. Now we're down to 12. They're in this room, and Jesus is taking this somber individual tone with them, and you don't really know where it's going. It's this special talk. It's the eve of Passover, and the first thing that he did, shockingly, was wash their feet, as we saw last week, which seemed to be a stunning deal in and of itself. And what does he do? He then tells them, I, as the Lord and Master and Teacher, if I washed your feet, so also you ought to wash one another's feet. That's not boating very well, friends, when you're thinking like, hey, I want to ride the coattails of the guy that's going to win all the games. And then that dude takes the position of a slave and says, oh, by the way, you are going to do the same thing if you're going to follow me. It's not the best of starts to the dinner, but it can recover. You know, it could get better, you would think. And then it does this. And yet what's happening every step of the way is the text is showing that Christ is aware of and even orchestrating His own experienced evil. His own betrayal. This did not, by any means, take Him by surprise. And that's the point of the text. This is a a simple narrative about Jesus' oversight of his own betrayal, his own experienced evil, so that, here's here's the point, let me just give it up front, 
It's so that we would either start believing in Him as the one who would suffer and die for sin, or that our faith would be strengthened in Him. Here's one who rules over even evil itself. It's heavy. It's hard. Hang with the text, and then we'll unpack its relevance. This this oversight of Jesus' betrayal unfolds in two scenes. If you like to take notes, it might be helpful. The first is the betrayal predicted in words. He's going to predict it with his words in verses 18 to 20. And then after that, we're going to see his uh, betrayal played out in actions. Betrayal predicted in words. Betrayal played out in actions. It's going to happen exactly like he said. Notice how he calls it before it ever happens in verses 18 and 20. Look again at verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Context is key here. I know we parachuted in mid-speech, but you remember he was talking about all of them being blessed and clean. Hey, you, you wash one another. I mean, you're going to be washed by me, and you're going to have the experience to have this special joy and peace by washing the feet of others. And it just sounds like a great happy time, an odd happy time. I mean, they're going to be slaving, but a happy time. We're clean. We get to serve one another. Until he adds this, but not all of you. You're like, well, that's weird. <laughs> I mean, I thought we were the final 12. Everybody else may have left you, but surely, like, this is the group. I mean, we're going to be the ones to, like, keep hanging on to the bitter end. And so Jesus gives them a heads up. Hey, this isn't true of everybody. I'm not speaking of all of y'all. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. Okay, so he's going to quote a Scripture here. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I don't know how um, how that strikes you when you're reading it. You're like, hmm, I've never heard that Bible verse. Well, you did today. (laughs) Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is a basic psalm written by David, king of Israel. And he's talking about the good things that God does for those who faithfully follow him. And then that psalm takes a really weird turn. Because, like, you think he's singing this happy song, and then all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, he starts talking about all this terrible stuff that happens to him. One of those things being, in Psalm 41, verse 9, that he who ate my bread, my own friend, turned his heel against me. Like, wow, that's a a tough day. Well, it's a tough day if you know what it means. He who ate my bread. Let's just start there. That's the part that Jesus references. For us, it doesn't, a meal is a meal, but in an ancient Near Eastern context, a meal was actually an expression of relational trust. It was an intimate experience. I mean, they were dipping the bread in the same dish, if you will. You know, it was an honor to be at the table, especially of a king. It was a pledge of allegiance almost. The, the king was extending trust to the individual by allowing them to dine at their table, putting himself in a vulnerable spot. And then also, he's extending honor to the individual by enabling them to partake. Remember, just uh, a few months ago, uh, I was asked to uh, supposedly uh, have dinner with uh, DeSantis. 
And it was like they wanted some pastors to come and have dinner with them. And I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be me and Ron. <laughs> like hanging out at the table. And I get, I get to the event and they're like, you know, drop your phones off. We're going to take you on a bus over to this little house. It wasn't a little house. It was a big house. Uh, and we get in and uh, the fact that I'm on a bus with a bunch of other people is already beginning to lower my expectations. <laughs> Two other buses of individuals had already been dropped off there as well, and um, there's good, you know, food and drink, and people were mixing about, and then all of a sudden, DeSantis comes whirring in with the entourage, sweeps in for a second, and they have a special room set up, and it's about as big as the center section here, and everybody has to take their seats, and they do a little interview, and that was the dinner with Ron DeSantis. (laughs) That was not an intimate experience. I heard everything he was going to say on Fox News that night ahead of time. But a meal with a king? Like to actually sit around the table? That's an expression of trust. This is someone who's on the inner circle. David is saying that he who ate bread with me, he who ate bread at my table, and then here's the weird phrase, but hang with me, turned his heel against me. Every culture has its unique ways of uh, using body parts to offend one another. (laughs) I'm not trying to be crude, but you need to hang with me for a second. In North America, it's the middle finger. I won't, never mind, I'm not going to do that. No explanation needed. You show that, you're saying something. In South American cultures, you're actually not supposed to show your tongue Considered gross, disgusting. Ice cream, even on a cone, is supposed to be eaten with a spoon. In Eastern Europe, I won't do the, because I know there's some Eastern Europeans here, there's a certain thing that you can do by snapping your fingers and then hitting your hands together that is extremely crude. And you're, you're thinking like, that seemed like a big deal to me. I like ice cream all the time. And children, the story that I'm not going to tell you, often will wave around a middle finger and not even know what they're doing. It's just, culturally, certain, certain body parts mean something offensive. Well, in a Near Eastern culture, the, to lift up your heel against someone was a highly offensive thing. Now, we don't know exactly what it was, but it either means to stomp on someone while they're down, or the idea of them turning their back on you and walking away. Or if you've ever seen like what a cat does after it uses the bathroom and kicking dust back. Some people think that even that's the notion of what's being conveyed here. The point is that it was a sign of dishonor and betrayal by one who was in intimate contact. Psalm 41.9, that's the, the verse that he's quoting. And the, the question you should be asking yourself at this point is, what in the world does Psalm 41.9 have to do with Jesus? It was David who was writing But what you need to get is that Davidic Psalms especially, and Davidic experiences, because David was such a great leader, like began to, as as they kept waiting for this promised one to come, they began to hold more and more importance to such a degree that people would begin looking for this person who would have like the ark experience of David, like He was just a type, but there would be this greater David who would come and he would experience something similar to what the previous David did, but on a greater scale. 
So here's the quick version. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Psalm 22, all of those were beginning to get applied to this new and greater David. And Psalm 41. It was the expectation that if David, the greatest king who ever ruled and reigned, had someone betray him, so also one day, one would even betray this greater king to come. And so Jesus says, the Scripture must be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread will turn himself and lift his heel against me. And so notice, why does he tell them about this ahead of time? Why is it so important for them to make this connection back to Psalm 41? Look at verse 19 in your Bible. I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. That's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? It would be natural to think, well, that was, that was a problem. And yet Jesus is saying, no, this is part of the plan. I'm telling you what's going to happen before it happens, so that, here's the point of the text, friends, so that you may believe. Please hang with me here, friends. That this text is not about you being kind to your enemies like Jesus. This text is not about you not defecting on Jesus like Judas. This text is about Jesus knowing that he would be betrayed, calling it ahead of time so that you would believe. So that you would know that he even oversees the evil things that happen in this life. He said specifically that you may believe that I am he. The word he is actually not in the Greek text. It's ego eimi, that you may know that I am. We've seen this over and over again in the book of John. He uses the Greek version of the divine name of God. I want you to know that I am Yahweh. I am the one calling the shots. I am the one that is in control. It is not happening to me. I am letting it happen. So this is important for us because we get the importance of seeing something happen before it happens. Like, um, if you've flown on an airplane ever in your life, uh, it does you well to hear ahead of time. My friends, you're going to need to turn on your seatbelts because we're about to reach a rough patch of air. You're like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. Because you experience the rough patch, you've got your seatbelt on, you're fine. But woe be to the passenger and the pilot that experiences the rough patch and there wasn't anything said ahead of time. Like, what's going on up there? (laughs) This is out of control. I mean, it's a different framework. Jesus is calling it ahead of time. He's saying, all right, friends, buckle your seatbelts. We're about to hit a rough patch. This is rough air that we're going to have to go through together. 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 Which is why verse 20 is in there. When you're reading through this, don't worry, this will be the hardest part of what I'm going to talk about today. So hang with me. When you're reading through this and you see verse 20, you're like, what's going on? What does this have to do with anything. The, the text says it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, 
and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is like, I don't know, the umpteenth truly, truly statement in John. You, you may remember that that's Jesus giving like the court pronunciation, almost like taking an oath ahead of time saying, hey, what I'm about to say, take it to the bank. This is really true. And you're like, he's predicting his betrayal, but now all of a sudden he gives this like kind of reassuring promise that, hey, when I send you guys out, whoever receives you is actually receiving me. And step two, whoever receives me is actually receiving the Father. Implication, we're all in this thing together. Whoever receives you is receiving me, who's receiving the Father. And by implication, whoever rejects you and rejects me is rejecting the Father. He wants them to know that even though they will experience likely the same kinds of evil and hardship that he himself will experience, it's all going to be fine because they have been united together. His people are one with Christ. Christ is one with his Father. He says, just be assured that no matter what happens to me, no matter what may happen to you, we're all in this together. So he calls it ahead of time, and that's important for our faith. Can I ask a question? I'm going to ask for you to raise your hand just for a second. Don't worry, I will not do this through the whole message. How many of you would say that you grew up in a, a Christian background? And I mean that in the most broad sense possible. Christian, Christian background. Okay, thank you. Put your hands down. Um, I don't know the stats exactly, but it's the overwhelming majority of individuals in here. This, I'm telling you something that you need to hear. Some of us have been so steeped in the Christian faith that we forget how incredible, I don't mean incredible like yay, I mean incredible as in hard to believe. We forget how incredible it is for us to believe the message of Jesus from the outside. One guy who was straight up about this and very vocal about it uh, was a, a Jewish man who actually claimed some affiliation with Christianity by the name of Albert Schweitzer. He was this polymath, like 19th century, just smart in all areas kind of thing. And he, he wrote this interesting book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. I do not recommend it. But he thought very carefully about who Jesus was. He was straight up honest about the outside perspective of Jesus and his supposed mission. Just listen to these lines. He says, Jesus was the man who threw himself upon the wheel of history in an attempt to bring it to a halt, to bring this world to an end, to usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness and power. But the will continued to turn, and it crushed him. And it crushed him. Now, you don't get the wheel analogy unless you've ever like, seen a pirate ship. Can you imagine that for a moment? And that big wheel is turning, and Jesus threw himself, Schweitzer is saying, upon the wheel of history, and he tried to move the thing, and yet history was just inescapable, and as he was trying to turn it, the wheel actually crushed him. It's a violent image, and it's not over. Schweitzer continues. He says, even now, his mangled body hangs on that wheel as it turns, and this is his victory and reign. The image is one of an irresistible force that overwhelmed Jesus of Nazareth in history and still holds him in its power. 
In fact, Schweitzer would call this a negative theology. He says, uh, it is the negative theology of a failed Messiah. He does say that Jesus left a positive legacy of people dying for what they believe in. Friends, do you get why Schweitzer thinks that way? He's not alone. If you're looking at this thing from the outside, it seems like a really terrible plan. So everybody who raised your hand, reality check for a second. Imagine being a typical power-obsessed Roman citizen or a victorious Lord God will destroy all our enemies Jew. And someone tells you to trust in a Jewish rabbi who was handed over to the authorities by one of his closest friends and humiliatingly executed by his enemies only to supposedly come back to life, ascend into heaven, and rule through his people one day. Anybody buying that? Like, it just, it seems a little crazy. Like, if he said, I'm going to die on this cross, and he has his own followers do it, that's one thing. But when he gets turned in by his closest ally, you're like, no, that wasn't part of the plan. And you know what the text is saying? Yeah, it was. He called it. He said it. He was fulfilling Scripture. He's saying it ahead of time so that we would know that when it happened, like, dang, he was right. And that we would believe. That's how the passage works. It has massive import for our belief in him and our experience in similar forms of suffering as his followers. This was not an accident. So, scene one, the betrayal predicted in word. But there's another scene. He predicts it in word, and then they play it out indeed. It plays out indeed. So right now, Jesus has only called it with his mouth. Now let's see what actually goes down. Verse 21. Well, let's not do 21. Okay, so what's going to happen here, friends, is going to be, you're going to start, because this is a cool narrative. It's very graphic. Lots of vivid details. You're going to start thinking about a picture. And the picture that you're going to start thinking of, if I, if I know the crowd right, it's the wrong picture. Here's why. Nobody get angry. Leonardo da Vinci wasn't there. <laughs> he wasn't there. When we think of the Last Supper, we mentally impose like the most famous image of the Last Supper we've ever seen. Jesus sitting in the middle, long banquet table, the guys are down to the side, Judas has this nefarious look. I mean, like you, you've got that, that picture, and it's not the picture. So, I need you to get a different picture, a more historically accurate picture, and then we can let the story go. You ready? Um, fix number one. They weren't sitting at a table. They were laying at what's called a triclinium. You're like, man, triclinium, that sounds fancy. It's actually not that fancy, friends. How many of you, like a child of the 80s, know what a TV tray is? <laughs> no, no, I'm not talking about the ones that you pull up to the chair. I'm talking about the ones that you sit in the floor. They're about this tall. A triclinium is just basically a really long TV tray. <laughs> it's a short, low-lying table. 
And it was one that, I mean, even though Jewish people typically sat at chairs, it was one that they would actually break out for special celebrations because it was considered to be more lavish. So when somebody was doing this meal, it's called triclinium, by the way, because it has three sides, so you could fit more people around it. They would lay on their their left, because most of them are right-handed, they'd lay on their left side on the ground, and they would eat with their right hand. Again, they would use the bread to eat, kind of like if you get lavash at a Greek place and dip it in hummus. That was kind of like the way the meal took place. So imagine 12 dudes, not sitting at a table, but huddled around a triclinium on the ground. It's a very intimate setting. Their heads are close to one another. The food is right there in front of them. It's not banquet style. And with this, they are are tightly packed in. And with that, now, please, let's do the story. Jesus is speaking, and this is what he says in verse 21 to kick it off. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, he's already said in the previous verses that he's going to be betrayed. Remember, he quoted Psalm 41.9. But here he says something that is like a, a bomb going off. One of you will betray me. It's one thing for Jesus to be betrayed by some unnamed associate out there somewhere. But now he says, with great trepidation in his soul, one of you will betray me. The word troubled in spirit is fascinating to me because it's used in some versions of uh, the Greek manuscripts back in John chapter 5. Remember where it talked about uh, this angel stirring the waters and people would try to get into the pool and be healed? The, the, one, the word for stirring the waters is the same word for troubled here. Jesus is saying, or John is saying of Jesus, he was stirred of soul. Imagine not peaceful, gentle ocean, but roaring ocean. Not peaceful, quiet brook, but raging rapids. His soul is churning on the inside. And the only other places where this is used in the book of John up to this point is in reference to death. The way that Jesus felt on the inside is the way that you and I feel when we are about to die or someone we know has died. But notice what he's troubled about. He's not thinking of death yet. This isn't the scene in the garden where he's praying great, I mean, uh, sweating these great drops of blood. This is just the betrayal. It feels like death. And he has to say something. And I just want to be really real because this is a beautiful insight into the humanity of Christ. But you talk to people who have been betrayed in the most intimate of ways, especially in the marital relationship, and you know how they describe it? It's like death. It's like I died on the inside. The relationship had been murdered right in front of me. Jesus is feeling it to that degree, and so he says ahead of time, with this trouble of soul, one of you will betray me. You talk about awkward dinners. I mean, the tension is something that you could cut with a knife. I imagine that there's just a stunned silence. People are looking around. They thought they were the fateful 12, and now there's somebody in the, in the middle of them who is going to disrupt this, this intimate setting, someone who's close to them. And they look at one another in verse 22, uncertain of whom he spoke. And in that awkward moment, 
People said that they were asking, is it I, is it I? John doesn't record that. John records it as being very quiet. But it does say this in verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's the way that John typically describes himself in this gospel. And by the way, it's not one who Jesus loved, like he was ultra special, but like he loved even me. (laughs) He's humble about it. He doesn't want to include his name. It says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. If you look in some translations, it says, in Jesus' bosom. Like, well, that sounds really close. (laughs) Because it is close. Remember, they're laying there. They're huddled around the table. Jesus is lying on his left side. John is beside him on his left side. Therefore, he's at his bosom. He's by his chest. He's really close to Jesus. So, no da Vinci. Just think of this. Think, think of what the text is saying. You've got Jesus and John lying right beside one another. And, and, and here's, here's what happens. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. I need you to, to check me out for a moment and not the, uh, the text. Just look up here. You ever been in one of those uh, scenarios where it is like stunningly silent and somebody gives the nod? That's exactly what goes down. Jesus drops the bomb, says, one of you will betray me. They're all like, I don't even know what to say. Who is this? They're looking at one another, and in that tense moment, Peter looking at John, sitting right beside Jesus, says, John knows exactly what to do. And according to the text, That disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Some translations say that he was leaning on his chest. That's the natural way that that would have happened if he was trying to lean back and talk to him. And it seems that Jesus responds in kind as he silently asks, and therefore Jesus silently answers. Look at verse 26. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, nobody else seems to know this because the text is going to say in a few moments that they didn't have a clue what was going on. And so, dear friends, I want you to note something. This is a stunning, stunning way to show who the betrayer would be. The preparing of a morsel of bread by the host, this is a a custom of the day, and giving it to a guest was a great show of honor. Here they are having this special Passover meal, and part of that meal was, was taking this unleavened bread that would be dipped into bitter herbs and vinegar and water and salt and crushed dates. And then it could be served to an individual, and for it to come from the hand of a host was a sign of honor. It's something kind of like in our own day of somebody mid-meal, like, dinging on the glass and wanting to give a toast. Jesus here, in essence, toasts Judas by preparing this bread for him as the host, as the person in the place of honor, giving it over to him 
And that becomes the very sign by which he will identify his betrayer. Isn't it odd? Jesus, Judas will identify Jesus as the one to be betrayed by a kiss. And Jesus will identify Judas as the one to betray with a toast. This was no accident. He knew exactly who he was giving this bread to. This morsel. And look at the second half of verse 26. So, when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He gives him this formal name, John does, so that you don't mistake it with the other Judas who was sitting around the table. And then verse 27, this is chilling. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Friends, despite your ultra-intellectual, western, modern tendencies to view evil exclusively as some kind of psychological deficiency, the text of Scripture actually says that Satan entered into Judas. There is a real, verifiable, actual, evil entity in this world. Yes, there are psychological deficiencies, and I'm not going to go down the road of when it's psychological and when it's spiritual, but let's just acknowledge what the text says. Sometimes it is Satan actually at work. And when you see the stuff that I've had the misfortune of seeing, just things watched on TV, things been exposed to, books read, you just think, wow. Some things really are evil, and this is exactly what takes place. Satan now takes full control of Judas, and it causes us to ask all kinds of questions that I don't think I'll be able to satisfactorily ask here. Like, is Judas actually accountable? This is that Satan entered into him. Can Satan enter into us? Maybe at some other time I can teach a class on this. But all I want you to know is that God is in control of everything, and yet human beings are still responsible. Uh, This was true when Judas became a disciple, by the way. He chose to follow Christ, but he only became a follower of Christ because Christ chose him. What did he say? He said, I chose you. Now, he didn't do it kicking and screaming. Judas did it because he wanted to. Judas' betrayal was predetermined, but it was in no way contradicting the truth that he acted of his own volition. I read here from a commentator. I think this is helpful. Jesus affirmed both truths, his sovereignty and Judas' responsibility when he said in Luke twenty-two twenty-two, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. God's sovereignty, you see it? But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, Judas' responsibility. The sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his will. We sang that earlier today use the evil plans of Judas' wicked heart to bring about the good of redemption. Remember Joseph? Genesis 50, 20. You all meant it to me for evil, but what God meant it for good. So Jesus is in full control here, friends. But Satan is at work as well. And notice the way that Jesus now, speaking to Judas, bossing Satan around, says, hey, go and do it quickly. 
He's so in control that he's actually bossing Satan around. Don't waste any time. Now's the time. Go do your thing. Friends, this is hardly one being crushed on the wheel of history. This is someone with both hands on the steering wheel, hitting the wave head on. But the larger group, they have no frame of reference for what's going on. John's so shocked that he cannot speak. He doesn't speak here. So Jesus, breaking the silence and giving that morsel to the group. Notice verse 28. This is interesting. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. They had no idea that it could have been Judas. But Jesus knew. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Keep in mind, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread like happened at the same time. So there was a week-long feast on top of Passover, and you would need the supplies for the whole week. Well, the next day was going to be Passover. All the stores would have been closed. You get it. Like maybe they were thinking, oh, we need to go get some more stuff. He's got the money. He can go. The other one is to go give alms. And you're like, why in the world would he go give alms in the middle of the night during dinner? Well, Actually, on the eve of Passover, this is an interesting historical fact, Josephus tells us that the temple gates would remain open on this particular night. That's where all the, the homeless people would gather, those who were poor, those who needed alms. They would normally, the gates would be shut at sundown. They would be open all night so that people could give more on that time. So maybe they're thinking, hey, Alms is something that's so appreciated, maybe that he's going to do a last-minute giving of alms uh, to the poor. But here's the deal, friends. The eleven may not know what's going on, but Jesus certainly does. And at Jesus' command, the betrayal has commenced, and we end with verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Upon receiving the token of kindness, he takes off to have Jesus killed. That's the sign. And then note the narrative detail. It was night. John says more than we could ever realize in this. In more ways than one, Judas has plunged into the darkness. And in more ways than one, darkness had descended upon Jesus and his disciples. Death would soon dawn, and even in that moment, it was drawing near. So, Jesus' betrayal, the experienced evil was predicted by Him in word and played out in deed. He did not merely allow this evil to come upon Him, but He oversaw it. He orchestrated it to accomplish the mission given Him by His Father. Friends, I'm reminded of those words often attributed to the author of the hymn that we sang earlier today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Some of you may not be that familiar with Martin Luther, but as one of the key reformers, he had an interesting insight into particularly the spiritual realm of darkness. Of all the reformers, Luther was regularly writing about his battles against the devil. 
Uh, some biographers even saying that in moments, uh, one particular moment of frustration, while he was writing, he actually threw a well of ink at Satan because he thought he saw him in the room. Same one would often encourage this spiritual warfare against this great dark enemy as well. In fact, you're going to, this will be a little crude, but it's worth bringing out. In fact, he, he was so uh, enamored with uh, this battle against Satan and wanting to actually come across in a way that um, Satan was not going to overcome that he even had this strategy, I'm not kidding, this is going to sound crazy, of passing gas in Satan's direction. <laughs> and I'm not, there is actually one instance where he encouraged a woman to do the same. Here's this great theologian, this guy who knows so much about uh, the Bible, who, who's ironed out so many things about the gospel and the law, and yet he had this like uncanny hold on the reality of Satan. And he actually warns us against the two great errors in considering evil. One is to be obsessed with it and think that evil will always prevail. The other, the one that we're more inclined to do, is to minimize it so as to think that it's not there at all. Did you not even uh, pick up that in the hymn that we sang earlier today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? One and a half of the verses are talking about the spiritual evil that we come across uh, and face. I'll just read you these lines. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Like, whoa. Then it goes to the next verse, or the third verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Friends, evil is real. It happens. It happens. And yet, this is probably Luther's most famous line. And the one that I would leave us with before we think through a couple applications. Even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil is God's devil. He's still the ultimate. The evil that we experience in this world is real, and I by no means want to minimize it. Somebody used the analogy one time of something like a quarter. If you were to take a quarter and you were to put it up in front of your eye, it would block your view of even the sun. This big blazing ball of fire, as big as it is, can be obscured based on how close you put that quarter to your eye. But when you put it back in perspective, it's nothing to compare. 
Friends, every once in a while, we, we need to take a good view at evil and realize that it will indeed obstruct our view of God and His sovereign control over all things, and it seems like that there's some kind of great darkness that's encroaching upon our lives. It is there. It is real. It indeed blocks the view, but it pales in comparison to the blazing glory of God revealed in Christ. He's in control of it. And he somehow, some way, works it out to his sovereign ends. He's shown us this for two reasons. That we would start believing, or that we would be strengthened in belief. And we end with this practical consideration. Friends, some of you in here have indeed experienced this evil. You know what it's like to not only have experienced evil personally, or you've seen others suffer at its hands, maybe you were even an instrument of evil upon another. And I want you to know something, God is greater than that. Jesus was not caught off guard. God is not caught off guard by these things. One said it this way, He was not the deceived and helpless victim of unsuspected treachery, but one sent by God to effect God's purpose going forward calmly and unafraid to do what God had planned for him to do. Jesus experienced evil and he overcame it. The ultimate evil was for the innocent one, the, the, the Son of God himself, to suffer and bleed and die. That's evil. And yet, that was the price for our rebellion against Him. And He overcame that. And He rose again from the dead. And He is victorious over it. And He will one day fully and finally abolish it forever. And so the text is trying to call on those of you who have not trusted in Him yet to believe. It may seem at times that stuff is off the rails, but here's an illustration from history at the turning point of history that says, no, God's in control of it all. And he may be using the evil that you've experienced to draw you into relationship with himself so that you might believe that you would trust in him, that you would turn from your sin and your selfishness and that you would begin to follow him in the life of his son. He entered into our humanity, not just the good parts, but all of it. He died in our place. He rose again, and we're returned to make right all that which is wrong. So may it start faith in some. May it strengthen faith in others. It's hard to believe. It's been 10 years since I was in a seminary. This is Grad school for pastors, you think of it as this intelligentsia, all these smart people supposedly working on a graduate degree. And it is a highly intellectual environment. Uh, but I remember in, in one theology class early, I was assigned, or I had the opportunity to write a paper. And they, I had a narrow list of topics to write about. And one of them was, I thought this would be helpful, a pastoral response to the problem of evil. So I threw myself into this thing. Like it, You couldn't just answer the problem of evil. You had to answer, how would you as a pastor work with other people who were experiencing evil? The problem of evil. Like they suffered in some unjust, crazy, heinous way. 
And do you know what the, like, the paper was really long, and it's not that great, but here were the two takeaways. <laughs> One is, weep with them. Be compassionate. Don't try to correct people's theology in the middle of suffering. Just hurt with them. That's what Jesus would do. And you know what the second one was? Prepare them for it before it happens. Prepare them for an understanding that God is in control of all things before they're in the middle of it. Steal their spiritual spines ahead of time so that when they enter into that situation, they are ready. I get it, friends. We're not going to be walking out of here this week like we did last week with like, man, you know what? I know exactly what I need to be doing. I'm going to start serving some people. I'm going to put it on my spiritual to-do list. What an applicable message. Friends, this one's going to apply to you when you least want it to. All I'm trying to do here today, in honesty with this text, is to steal your spiritual spine. Yes, indeed, it happens. And I'm telling you, I'm calling you to believe even now that God's over it. He's gone in it and through it and has conquered over it. And you better know it before it happens. I love this, this line from William Gurnall, this old Puritan. He says, encouraging believers to hold fast when they encounter Satan's opposition. When God says, he's talking about Satan. When God says, stay, Satan must stand like a dog by the table with the saints' feast on God's comfort. While the saints feast on God's comfort. He does not dare to snatch even a tidbit, for the master's eye is always upon him. Friends, you indeed may experience evil in this life, but I assure you, your Savior has overcome for you. We end where we began, Psalm 41. He says, He turned his heel against me, this one who broke bread with me, and then it assures them that in the end, the righteous will enjoy the everlasting benefit of God. We're not immune from it, but even in it, we're united to Him. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. Satan is strong, but our God and Father is stronger still. And so in Him we rest and rely. Let's pray. Father, these are, these are hard things. These are heavy things. And while we've mentioned much of Your Son, we now plead that Your Spirit would work among us to steal our spiritual spines for those times where we may experience such evil in and of ourselves. Strengthen our faith. And start faith, begin faith in those who have yet to believe. May they see that You have been in control of it all. Even the, own, your, the, the suffering of your son is not or outside the realm of your sovereign care. May they know that it was part of the plan that he would come and die and be buried 
be risen again to life for their justification. May they believe even today. So give us great joy and confidence in our sovereign God and our mighty fortress. In His name we pray. Amen.